Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit will be with us as we study about the beginning of the war in heaven. Very important topic this morning. We ask that you will give us discernment to be able to differentiate the truth from the air, we pray. Be with our class members here, their families, bless them. Be with the uh, members of our class who are traveling and out of town. Watch over them and our and our online family around the world that you will empower them to be able to take this message into their communities and light in the world, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are starting a new quarterly today, Rebellion and Redemption. The title of the lesson is Crisis in Heaven. Now, if you look at the third paragraph in the introduction to the quarterly, it says the following. Satan's effort to misrepresent the character of God to cause men to cherish a false conception of the Creator and thus to regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. His endeavors to set aside the divine law, leading the people to think themselves free from its requirements, and his persecution of those who dare to resist his deceptions have been steadfastly pursued in all ages. They may be traced in the history of patriarchs, prophets, and apostles of martyrs and reformers. This is the central issue. In the war, central issue, our conception of God. How do we view him? Do we view him with love and trust? Do we view him with fear and hatred? This quote also mentions that Satan has endeavored to set aside the divine law, to lead people to think themselves free of its requirements. And I want you to think, how? How has he endeavored to do that? Well, if you look at the first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson... It says the uh, the following, and it's quoting from a book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 34. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all intelligent beings depend upon their perfect accord with with its great principles of righteousness. Pause in the middle of the quote. Think think as you read. Why? Why are we required? Why does our happiness, for our happiness, is it required that we harmonize with its principles? What law lens are you looking for as you think about this? Looking through. Are you looking through the law lens of the way human laws work, system of rules that we impose and then we enforce with punishments? Are you looking through design law, creator who built his universe and has certain protocols upon which life is actually constructed to operate? If you're thinking level one through four moral development, looking through that imposed law lens, then you think, well, our happiness is dependent upon obedience because if we disobey, we'll get in trouble with the ruling authority and he'll have to punish us and that makes us unhappy. How much of Christianity functions at this level? We don't want to be unhappy because God will send us to hell and he'll punish us and that makes us unhappy. So our happiness is to keep him happy so he won't hurt us. Or are you thinking like one of the mature friends of God who understands God's laws, the design protocols, and that when you deviate from those designs, it's actually damaging and destructive to you, and thus you can't be happy in that state. Continuing on with the quote. God desires from all creatures the service of love. Now think that through. Just contemplate that for a moment. Service that springs from an appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in forced obedience. And to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service. What kind of law compels forces? What kind of law compels and forces? This is the kind of laws we can make. We can't build reality. We can't, we can't create time, space, matter, energy. We can't do that. So what we can do is we can make up rules. And then we can enforce them. That, and coerce. 
So imposed laws, the laws that created beings make. And thus, if we teach God operates that way, we've taken him off his throne as creator. We're not worshiping creator anymore. We've taken him off his throne and made him no better functionally than us. If you understand how the two types of laws function, then in this very statement, we don't have to go any farther than this, you can recognize the difference between God's law and man's law. You can see the diverging split in the great controversy. So if God takes no pleasure in forced obedience, if all are granted truly genuine free will, what action on God's part is therefore excluded in the functioning of his law? What? Force. Yes, the use of power to enforce his law. <coughs> Coercive enforcement. So with this in mind, what does it mean then, putting all this together, that Satan has tried to get people to set aside the divine law and think themselves free of its requirements. How has he got them to set aside divine law? What the, well, what does the law require? Righteousness. Righteousness. And obedience in the, in the, through the design law lens is absolutely right. So, this is a few quotes. This is the um, A New Life, page 32. The divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, there are some texts from Scripture hopefully come to mind. If you keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what is right. All law summed up in love for God and love for your... Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on this, Jesus said. Next quote, Review and Herald, March 11, 1884. This is the voice of God to you. That's quite a profound statement. This is God speaking right here. This is God's voice. My brothers and sisters who profess to keep the law of God. And here it is. That law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a second. Uh, where's the, that law requires you do this or you do that? That was um, Review and Herald, March 11, 1884. Review and Herald, April 5, 1898. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. And then Signs of the Times, February 24, 1898. Christ came to this world to live the law and represent the character of God, that the delusions which Satan had brought upon the world might be dispelled. What was his purpose in living the law? Delusions. Who's got those delusions? What is a delusion? By definition, what's a delusion? Distorted view of reality. A, that's exactly right. It's, in psychiatric parlance, defined as a fixed false belief. A fixed false belief. Okay? Is, is the world fixed on a false belief about God's character and how he operates? It's a delusion. How many of our own church leaders preach delusional material. Yes, hand somewhere. Yes. Are questions delusions? The reason I ask that question is because I think this was his demonstration in the in the universe was for the universe. It wasn't just for us. No, are, you said are, are questions delusions? Yeah. No, question, questions are not delusions unless the questions are the rhetorical question that are really not questions or statements. But if they're actually questions that are coming from a mind that wants to differentiate truth from error and seeking to get the evidence to do so, no, they're not, they're not delusions. But they can kind of point to deception. Like Satan used question 
to deceive. To deceive. Right. To the kind of, well, is that really true? You know, noticing what I said, if they're coming from a heart that really wants to discern. Yes, questions can be used to, pers- to promote delusion by undermining confidence in what's true. So the law is shown to be a, a representation of God's character that man may see that he must render obedience to the law if he would become a member of the royal family, a child of the heavenly king. This law requires nothing short of perfect spiritual obedience. Now, does that scare you? Does that sound uncomfortable? Do you get all kind of tense and it's like, oh, there we go, back to it again. I was raised into this perfect spiritual... Okay, you just reverted to level one through four thinking. You're under the imposed law with system of rules that you must obey. If you were at the hospital and, and the doctor said, now... Physical health requires that you be in harmony with the laws of health perfectly. If you deviate from the laws of health, you're going to get sick. Well, you're just putting so much work on me. That that sounds horrible. Or how about this when you go to the doctor? Doc, I've got cancer. Um, It's metastasized. um, But I only want to be 85% well. I don't want to be perfectly well. Do you want to be perfectly well? Or do you want to be 90% well? See, when you understand design law stuff, this perfect accord or perfect harmony means restored back perfectly to God's original design, living in harmony with how these constructed things, which is primarily about the motive of your heart, not the deed that you do. Thus, Rahab, whose heart was, I'm going to sacrifice myself to protect others. I'll lay down my life for others. I'll put my life at, on the line to protect other people. Lied, but where do we find her in Hebrews? And, and she's in the lineage of Christ, and she's in the hall of faith. See, she was perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Why? She was perfect in love. But she wasn't mature in love yet. You see, she hadn't grown up to understand the differences. She didn't trust God enough to say, I can speak the truth and he can send his angel armies like he did for Elisha to throw around a barrier if he needs to. She didn't have that yet experience with him. So the law requires love. And why? Because it's the basis of life. It'd be like saying this to someone. The law of respiration requires that you breathe. And what happens if you refuse to do so? That's that's what the law is saying. When you understand God's design law, that's all it's saying. So how has Satan gotten men to think they don't have to live in harmony with the law of God? I'm going to confuse you with this next statement. Here's the answer. By getting them to believe they have to obey the law of God. As an external device. How How has Satan gotten men to think they don't have to live in harmony with the law of God? By getting them to believe they have to obey the law of God. Yes, Satan wants people to think they have to obey God's law. Only Satan replaces God's true law with his own perverted version of that law. It's not design law. It's not the principles of love. It's not how life is constructed. It's a system of imposed rules imperialistically put upon us and coercively enforced. And you better obey or else. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, prophesied that this was going to happen. A little horn power would arise and seek to change God's law. And the whole world would be infected by the wine of the, of the fornication, of this beastly system. That in, and what does wine do to people? It intoxicates, confuses, right? And this wine of this doctrinal teaching has infected the entire world, and the entire world, pagan, unchristian, or Christian, still see God in this light. Isn't that directly related to the idea of, of original guilt because of the sin and that sort of thing? Seems to me. All stems out of that kind of stuff. So, Steve Morris last week 
uh, brought an article from the Chattanooga Times Free Press, our own Chattanooga paper. Shared it with me, and I read it this week, and I, I'm going to share this article with you, let you see the infection. It actually starts out sounding like, well, that's pretty good, but watch what happens. This is December 5, 2015, page E1. God isn't looking at us with an angry face. I once heard a person, badly, the pain I caused elicited an unforgettable response, eyes flashing fire, nose compressed like a spring under pressure, jaw locked, teeth grinding. It was an angry face. We've all seen the angry face at one time or another. It's nearly impossible to avoid, considering that we are bound to make somebody mad eventually. In my situation, the person I offended was no mere acquaintance, which made matters worse. Grief is compounded when we hurt someone close to us, like a spouse or parent or friend. We don't want those we love to be angry with us, and we especially don't want God to be angry with us. Have you ever been burdened with the feeling that God is looking at you with an angry face? If you're like many people, you do. God must be angry with me, or I think God is punishing me, are statements I frequently hear as pastor. Though we have been taught that God is love, many of us go on quietly believing that God is also mad. Doesn't that sound good to start with? Now watch what happens. Certainly, we deserve God's anger. Our thoughts and affections and behaviors often reveal that we prefer our own way over God's, and we know, if God cares about justice at all, that he must punish sin. Therefore, it isn't unreasonable of us to imagine a dark shadow of wrath on God's face. Our sins are many, God's judgment is certain, hell is real, and we are by nature children of wrath. And yet, what hopeful words. And yet, the Bible says, there is a way to know with absolute certainty that God is not looking at you with an angry face. How can you know? Look at the cross of Jesus. The cross wasn't merely an example of love. It was a substitutionary act of love. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Instead of turning his angry face upon us, God turned his angry face upon his son. God's eyes flashed fire, his nose compressed like a spring under pressure, and with locked jaw and clenched teeth, he poured upon Jesus the wrath we deserve. For God so loved the world. Jesus, the sinless substitute, absorbed in himself every ounce of God's anger over our sin, fully and finally. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you believe it? No condemnation, no angry face. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is, if you are trusting in Jesus for salvation, you can be absolutely certain God is not angry with you. You, you will still grieve God and your, uh, with your sins and experience his fatherly discipline, but God will never look at you in anger. His, all his anger has been spent in Jesus. <laughs> Do you see the infection? What law is being described here? Do you see how they pigeonholed God, the creator of the universe, to operate in a system of rules like human beings make? An imperial dictator. Sin must be punished. This is evidence of the infection and how deeply it has spread through humanity. This idea that God is arbitrary, being imposes rules, inflicts punishments. Let's jump back to the introduction in our quarterly. And the fifth paragraph states, Yes, God has pledged to bear in himself the full responsibility for all human rebellion and to suffer the consequences for every evil we have committed. Only in this way could God restore his relationship with human race, relationships between humans, and humanity's relationship with the rest of creation. What are they saying? 
I'm going to try to put a positive spin here because I think there's two possible ways we can hear them. If we hear them in the best possible light, are they saying, are they trying to say that God suffers in the way a parent suffers when they see their children engaged in behaviors that injure themselves? So all human sin and evil causes God to suffer in his heart because he loves us and all sin damages and destroys that which he loves. Are they saying that? If they are, then that's a healthy way. God does suffer when he sees us injure ourselves. Or are they trying to say that all sin, all the sins ever committed by every person throughout all history are legal breaches in God's law and require legal accountability in the divine government, which means they must be punished. And thus, all the individual acts of sin ever committed were placed upon Christ and God inflicted torment and torture upon Christ to cause Christ to artificially experience the legal proper amount of suffering for human sins. Are they saying that? That is classic penal substitution teaching. Did you like that view? And thus, they ultimately teach that God killed Christ on the cross. Yes, way in the back, Jennifer. Are they saying that we have a extremely urgent need that to revisit what we we believe, and that belief um, need to start from v- revisiting the character of God, and to make sure that what we believe is in line with that character. Seeing that there is so many views out there that is totally distorting its character, and hence leading us to believe in someone or, or views that are totally not God. Absolutely. Absolutely, this is critical. This is, this is the central issue. This is what the war began in heaven. Spread to earth. This is the final issue in the war between Christ and Satan is an issue of a question of God's law. Adventists have been duped into thinking the question over God's law is just which arbitrary rule are you keeping? Do you have the right day or don't have the right day? Rather than realizing days of the week that one worships on are just symbols, like a cross is a symbol, a pentagram is a symbol. They're symbols or signs. They are not the reality themselves. That's all. And if you don't understand the reality to which they point, then you can have the... I mean, can a person wear a cross around their neck and still be a Satanist? Okay, you can have the right sign and still be the, have the wrong heart. And many Adventists don't get this. And so, yes, it's critical that we come back to this. This is why our church is paralyzed. This is why the Christian world is paralyzed. This is why within Christianity there is no power and victory over sin and there's no difference in, as you've heard before, child abuse rates and and spouse abuse rates and pornography use and addictions in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. There's no difference in the rates. Because that system that that Satan has infected the world has no power. It's all a system of accountability of deeds rather than transformation of hearts. Russell. Wouldn't this presentation of God's laws being imposed and arbitrary have been the only, the only deception Satan could have used on the angels? Because if he, if he presented it as a natural law, but a dysfunctional natural law, the angels would have rejected it. With perfect, perfect segue. Let's jump into Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is about the fall in heaven. Yes. Before you go, continue with that. In that introduction, the last paragraph... Um, the second sentence, the challenge has always been where we place our loyalties, on the side that won or on the side that was lost. No, that's not the ultimate challenge. The ultimate challenge is who you believe in and why. Exactly. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? So, jump to Sunday's lesson, which is the fall in heaven, the war in heaven that Russell was referencing. With our understanding of God's true law in mind, the design law that Russell was just mentioning, How did Satan get a third of the angels to rebel? How did he do it? The lesson refers to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, both which describe 
Lucifer in heaven becoming infatuated with himself and, and wanting to uh, promote himself rather than use his abilities to bless others. He became self-referenced and, and grandiose and prideful. But what issue did he raise in heaven? He called, as we called, God's character and justice. What's justice? Guys, what, when you hear that, what is justice? Doing what's right. Yes, he called God's method of rightness, the way God made decisions. He called it into question. God's not right. God's wrong. He called his, his, his uh, character and justice into, into question. He suggested God was unfair, played favorites, was arbitrary, made up rules to, to, to make things uh, just work out the way he wanted. But what issue did he raise to suggest unfairness? How, how could he turn to perfect sinless beings and say, see, God's not fair. He plays favorites. He makes up rules. He's not designer. He's just a dictator. How could he, what, what issue could he point to? He suggested, Lucifer suggested, there was no difference between Lucifer and the pre-incarnate Christ. He basically suggested that perfection is an arbitrary idea that there is no such thing as true perfection, even in God. Well, that was the allegation that God was imperfect for sure. And, but, the, but, the, but the wedge that he used to make the allegation, the thing he pointed to as evidence was Christ and Lucifer are the same, but God plays favorites arbitrarily. God makes preferences. He arbitrarily chooses one over the other for certain special privileges. First Timothy 6.16 says, that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? Finite beings. Finite beings. That's exactly right. God is infinite. Can a finite mind, can your mind, assimilate infinite knowledge? Even if you want to, can it? It is impossible for a finite being to assimilate affinity. It would consume you. Anybody uh, saw that, that last Raiders of the Lost Ark movie? There was a, it, it, it actually depicted this at the end of the movie, this idea that they, they had these alien species and this human person was very evil, wanted all their knowledge, all their knowledge for herself. And at the end, she had this huge, so they gave it to her. They poured it upon her. With, and, and, and in a moment, it was, at the first moment, it's like, ah, oh, rapture. But then very quickly, she became uncomfortable and started, but stop, stop, no. And they just kept pouring the knowledge upon her. And it completely melted her down. She actually burst into flames in the movie. From this overwhelming, because it was more than a fight. They had so much knowledge, they were pouring into her. She couldn't handle it. It it just destroyed her. Finite beings cannot enter infinity. Yes? Probably a stupid question. Not that anybody's ever thought of this before, but if sin had never existed before, how did Satan even think about it? Where did it come from? Yes, the, the, the idea of where it came from. It came from, the scripture says, within Lucifer. Why it came, though, there's no explanation. There's no rationale. There's no justification. There's no reasonable reason. There's an unreasonable reason, but not a reasonable reason. Because if there were a reasonable reason that you could explain it, then it would actually be justifiable and sensible. But it's nonsense. It's insane. There is no reason for it. There is no justification. There was no cause for it. But it was possible in an atmosphere in which genuine liberties occur and sentient beings are truly free. So, um, so if, if God is the God that Jesus revealed, that he loves his creatures and wants intimacy with us. And remember, man is made in his image, right? 
And if you understand in your relationships, do you want intimacy with the people you love? Do you want closeness with the people you love? So if we bear that image, can you see God's heart wanting to be? But we can't enter infinity. We can't get in there. So if God wants the closest intimacy, what's going to have to happen if we can't enter infinity? A member of infinity has to leave infinity and enter linear existence. And that member is Jesus. Jesus has always been the member of the Godhead who was the go-between, the bridge builder, the one who left infinity to be the connecting link between his, his creation and infinity. Now, if you think about this, when Jesus left infinity to interact on the plane of a linear existence with his created beings in heaven, what form do you think he took? What physical form do you think he would appear in? Did he want to make the angels feel comfortable and safe and, and close? And, 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 or would he want to make them feel um, uh, uncomfortable, afraid, insecure? What, what would he want to engender in them? Approachable. approachable. So what form would he take? He would take the form of an angel. This does not mean Christ was an angel. He was not an angel. He took the form of an angel. Is there biblical evidence to support he did this? Sure. Exodus chapter 3, Moses goes to talk to God at the bush. God is speaking to Moses from the bush. You read it, read it in Exodus 3. I'm not going to read it now. And it says the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. Same thing happened when Samson's parents, the angel of the Lord came to them, and they, Scripture says they saw the Lord. It was God who was speaking to them. Whose voice did Jesus say would raise the dead? The day is coming when, they, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and live again, right? It will, yep, Jesus said his voice will do it. But when Paul described the resurrection, whose voice does he say is being heard? Archangel. The voice of the archangel is the voice that raises the dead. Yeah. And when, and when, and when Moses was actually raised from the dead, who was there raising him from the dead? This was Jesus. It, but what, what was this? What name was he given there? Michael. Michael, the archangel. Yeah, this is exactly right. And then Peter tells us, what name did Lucifer and Jesus share? Light bearer. Light bearer. In English, we would simply say light bearer. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus was the light that lightens all men. Jesus is the light of the world. Okay. Lucifer means actually, his name means light bearer. And Peter actually uses the word in um, 2 Peter 1.19, when he says that uh, the day star, the bright morning star, referring to Christ, will dawn in your heart. And in the Greek, that's phosphorus, translated into the Latin, is Lucifer. That, that same, same word. And so, Lucifer, the created being, looks over to Lucifer, the divine son of God, who left infinity to present himself in the form of an angel to interact in the most intimate and close way with his creatures and suggests there's no difference between us. God is playing favorites. Now I'm going to read to you, and we're going to take pauses through this reading to talk about what's being said here. This is one of the founders of the Adventist church. This perspective is what used to be taught in our church. I'm not sure it's being taught anymore in our church. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge the desire for self-exaltation. The scripture says, and this is quoting out of Ezekiel and Isaiah, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty and corrupted thy wisdom by the reason of thy brightness. Though all his glory was from God, this mighty angel came to regard it as pertaining to himself. Not content with his position, though honored above the heavenly host, he ventured to covet homage due only to the creator. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections and allegiances of the created beings, it was his endeavor to secure their service and loyalty to himself, and coveting the glory 
which the infinite Father had invested in his Son, the Prince of Angels aspired to to power that was the prerogative of Christ alone, to, to dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom and love of the Creator, had become the purpose of this Prince of Angels. Do you see the strategy? Again, the method, the tool, he pointed to questioning Christ's right to be in a special position, and therefore God is arbitrary by putting Christ in a position that he denies Lucifer from. This is the wedge he used. You will understand when you get that idea in your mind, a lot of pieces of the scripture will start falling into place. Have you ever wondered why the scripture says that all things, speaking of Christ, speaking of Jesus, all things were made by him and through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Is it because the Father couldn't have made it? Because the Holy Spirit couldn't have created? No, because the allegations in the war were against Christ being a created being. Lucifer and Christ are equal. So Christ demonstrates, hey, I may appear like an angel, but I'm no angel. I'm a creator. And he gives evidence of his character by actually being the one through which creation happens. Yes? So would you suggest then that the best way to understand the science of our salvation is to understand it from the point of the great controversy? There's no question. If you don't have this bigger picture, then the scriptures will be very confusing to you. Yeah. So can you know with the quote? Leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy. Notice methods being used here. And for a time concealed his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. That never happens, does it? And no. Uh, he began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of the worlds, angels being more exalted, needed no such restraint, for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. They were not beings that could bring dishonor to God. All their thoughts were holy. It was no no more possible for them than for God himself to err. What method is Satan using? There's a method. There's a stratagem here going on. What stratagem is he plying against these perfect angels? What's 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 he planting in their heart? Pride. Selfishness, self-exaltation, you're special. You are better than the world's. You, you, are, you are higher than them. You don't need these rules. You've got more abilities. You've got more insight. You've got more wisdom. In fact, it actually is degrading to you to think that there might be some law or rule or something like this that you might have to uh, uh, abide by. You don't need that. It's planting the seed of narcissistic self-entitlement and special, uh, special position in their hearts. We're special. We're different. Just it's 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 race it's a race war right here. It is. It's a, it's a race war. You angels are better than the people of the other worlds. The other worlds might need that, but you angels don't need that. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer. See, that's that same wedge. It's not fair. He's we're the same, and he gets exalted. I don't. Favors are being played. God is. God says, you know, he's he treats us all with equal equality, and it's all design stuff. But it's not. It's arbitrary rules. Who it, it was uh, so this exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father is represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also entitled to reverence and honor. If this Prince of Angels could but attain his true exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven. For it was his object to secure freedom for all. Oh, we're not free now. We've got these rules. We're restrained. But now. Even the liberty which they had hitherto enjoyed was at an end, for an absolute ruler had been appointed them, and to his authority all must pay homage. 
Such were the subtle deceptions that though that through the wiles of Lucifer were fast obtaining in the heavenly courts. What type of law is Lucifer now suggesting God runs his universe on? Do you see it? It's, this, it's an arbitrary system of rules, preferential treatment. It's not design protocol stuff. It's always, oh, look for it, imposed law constructs, always part of Satan's system of deception. If you're hearing theologies that are formed around imperialistic law, imposed law constructs, it's, it's evidence, prima facie evidence, that Satan's infection and the lies are operating there. Continuing on. There, has been no, there had been no change in the position or authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. Many of the angels, however, were blinded by Satan's deception. Do you understand? This idea that God came and and made a statement that, that, that Christ was one and equal with himself was alleged that somebody was now elevated. But the statement was only made because allegations had been made that they were equal when they weren't, but they were always unequal. Christ was always the Son of God, always the divine creator. No change in his authority or position was made by the statement. It was just declaring that which was already true, but had been misrepresented by Satan. Monday's lesson. Last paragraph of Monday's lesson. Walking to and fro, or walking back and forth, is not just the act of a tourist. In Scripture, it's a sign of ownership. When God gave the land to Abraham, he told him to walk its length and breadth, and similar to Moses and Joshua. Satan, in a sense, is flaunting himself as the God of this world. The God of this world, which is a, 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 a title that Second Corinthians uh, gives to Satan. And then the lesson asked at the top of the lesson, why does Jesus call Satan the prince of this world? And I think that's a great question. Does this title, prince of this world, refer to territories, physical boundaries, legal authorities, or is it referring to the world of selfishness, sin, disease, decay, and death? He is the prince of this sick world. See, does Satan have some legal right to this world? I'm going to tell you, it is a common teaching in Christianity that when Adam sinned, his legal authority went over to uh, Satan, and Satan now has legal claims and thus, and, and I've heard, get your mind around this, Christian pastors using this as evidence when Satan was tempting Christ, Satan said, all these I have the authority to give to you. And they, they're quoting Satan as telling the truth and as evidence that Satan had the right to give these things. And it's, why? Because they're operating on an imperial law construct. Think it through. Can Satan create space, time, energy, matter? Can Satan sustain with his power the operations of nature? Can he keep the laws of nature in force? Can he hold the laws of gravity? Can he hold the earth in its orbit and it's on its rotation? Can, does Satan have the power to do that? He cannot sustain. Can Satan cause the, the sun to shine? Can he cause the rain to fall? Can he cause the, 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 the flowers to grow? He has no ability to do these things. Thus, and if you understand design law, what I just described, these are God's laws. Thus, he has no authority over God's laws. He's never had authority over God's laws. You only get trapped into this debate when you're stuck in the imperial law construct and you see the world through the lens of how we operate. But even in that construct, even in that construct, if you want to talk on the level of somebody thinking through that lens, simply ask them this. 
If the mayor of Chattanooga signed documents ceding the city to a foreign power, would that be legal? Would that foreign power now have ownership over the city because the mayor who was in the proper constituted office signed the papers and gave them over? Why would that not be legal? There's a reason. Why would it not be true? Because the, the, the charter and the authority in which the mayor is operating is subordinate to a higher authority which gives him that right to rule in that level within the domain he rules. Okay? Which is both the state governmental operation, and then the federal system. There's two layers that he still operates under. He doesn't have the authority to do that. So, did Adam have the authority to, if you want to use the legal parlance, legally give away the planet Earth? No. No, he never had the authority to do that. It was never Satan's, this whole idea. And I'm going to tell you, this is deeply embedded into Christian thinking. Adventist pastors, I've heard them teach this kind of stuff all the time. It's level four and below thinking. But, for those of you who require an Ellen White quote before you'll believe anything I teach. <laughs> and there are those out there in the church. You can go through the reason, you can go through the rationale, you can go through the evidence, and it's so, prom- it's so clear. But if Ellen White didn't say it, I can't believe it. Okay, here you go. Desire of Ages 129. When, when Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, he stated what was true only in part, and he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that rest, rested from Adam. But Adam was the vicegerent of Christ, of the creator. He w- his was not an independent rule. The earth is God's and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord had said to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is in Daniel 4.17, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. Does that make sense to everyone? God is still sustaining what the, the laws of nature on planet Earth today. Satan's not sustaining our lives. Yes? Going back to, um, you know, they cast us thinking the way they do. I, as a person who is an Adventist for some time, I believe that one of the things that we're not encouraged to do is to think independently. It's, it's really reinforced. I believe that somebody have to think for you and give it to you on a platter. And probably without even saying it, but you're told to think this way. And if you think this way, then you're thinking the right way. And yep. it's the way that will save you. Yep. So I, I think that we are not taught to think independently. And as a result of that, when we come up in evidence that, that can refute what we believe or have prior belief on, we reject it. Because and we're not taught to think independently. And there are certain individuals within the organization that are in leadership in educational systems, not too far from here, um, <laughs> who actually market this idea that if you send your children to a particular institution I won't name, that they will, they're the last bastion of Adventist orthodoxy to protect your children from the influences of the worldly thought. In other words, we're not going to teach them to think. We're going to indoctrinate them in what to think. And there are many Adventists that they don't want their kids to be taught what the world teaches in evolutionary theory. They don't want them to be familiar with that line of reasoning. They don't want them certainly to hear what we teach. 
They just want the, 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 the checkbox system of doctrines that they're comfortable with inside their box. Because if you challenge anything outside the box, it, the box collapses and it makes them very uncomfortable. When Jesus was referring to Satan as the prince of this world, he was not speaking about territories and properties or physical boundaries or legal authorities. He was speaking about princes, the prince of selfishness and sin. And you think about it, what is truly Satan the actual prince of? He is the originator of evil. He is the father of lies. He's the murderer from the beginning. He's the instigator or rebel and thus the progenitor of pain, suffering, death, not God. But Satan is the prince of this sick world. Be clear on that. It's not about property. He, Satan blinds people to think through imposed law, prince of authority. We, we miss this, what's truly significant. This is why it's so offensive, outrageous, wrong, disgusting even, and destructive to teach that God is the source of inflicted suffering and death upon the wicked. It takes Satan's attributes and applies them to God. We also give Satan power in this teaching that he actually does not possess. And we teach that he has some legal claim that he never had. Tuesday's lesson. I got a question. Yes. Does this mean that like an Eastern thought where yin and yang are, you know, one is good and one is evil and they're inseparable, that with, there cannot be good without evil. Does that, does the description that you're giving totally cancel that concept as far as you're concerned? I think the great controversy perspective clearly cancels that concept. That concept, this, the, the, the good and the evil, and you'll, and you'll see this Eastern concept. It's in lots of, um, lots of fantasy books, lots of movies, lots of this idea that there must be balance in the universe, that the force, the, the, the dark side and the, and the, and the force, okay? Um, I, that might be out in, in the media right now. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you will see that, but this is Satan's fantasy. Satan wants a universe where there is eternal existence of evil, thus he gets to co-rule the universe. That's, that's, that's where this whole theory comes from. A place, and, and, and where Christianity teaches this idea of eternal existence of both good and evil is in doctrines that teach it, the existence of eternal evil. And there's two primary doctrines. What are those two doctrines? Hell. Eternal burning hell. There's evil for all eternity. We have a universe where now good and evil exist for eternity. And what's the other one? In, in um, the um, penal substitution theology. Because penal substitution theology teaches that God, in order to be just, must be inflict death. Thus, in this theology, God is the source of death. So now God, in his character, in this theology, is the source of life and the source of inflicted death, both life and death, eternal, eternally taught in the character of God. Those false. I do. Well, are even some Christian denominations that teach that Michael, the archangel, and Lucifer were, were brothers? Yes. And you know, so here we have the eternal exist, the past existence of good and evil and the future existence of good and evil. Yeah. So, th- so that's where that comes from. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. Brace yourselves. We have no idea what war in heaven means. That is, we don't know what kind of physical battles were fought other than the casting out of Satan and his angels. The fact is, the Bible does not say anything about the physical aftermath of this heavenly conflict. It deals instead with the spiritual results here on earth. Did did anybody besides me go, what? Are you kidding me? Am I the only one? All right, well, let me tell you why. I'm, I'm truly at a loss at how they could actually write something like this. There were no physical battles in heaven. 
How do we know there were no physical battles in heaven? Pardon? Without even going into further scripture or other evidences, if we believe the traditional way we are taught about God, he is supreme, all-powerful. How long would a battle between a finite being and an infinite being take? I mean, do you think that through? You you and a mosquito would be actually a closer... You and a mosquito is a closer battle than Lucifer and God. So Revelation 12.7, there was war in heaven. Revelation 12.7, there was war in heaven. The Greek for the word war is polemos, from which we get the word polemic. And the word... Look at the dictionary. The dictionary word means a controversial argument as one against some opinion or doctrine. It's an argument, a polemic. It was a, word of, it was a war of words, war of ideas. If you want further scriptural evidence, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are, are not worldly. They have divine power. So we're going to use divine weapons. Now, what are the divine weapons? We will use divine weapons to demolish Satan's strongholds. We demolish every argument, pretension, that sets itself up against, central issue, the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. The war is over who you conceive of God. And the weapons are, are weapons of argumentation, misrepresentation of evidence on the dark side. Okay, Truth, love, and freedom on God's side. So, I found this journal article, Review and Herald, September 7, 1897, which I found profound insight. See what you think of it. And we'll, we'll comment on this as we go through. Satan's representations against the government of God and his defense of those who sided with him were a constant accusation against God. His murmurings and complaints were groundless, and yet God allowed him to work out his theory. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easy as one picks up a pebble and casts it to the earth. How hard is it for you to throw a pebble to the earth? In fact, you don't have to do anything except let go. Notice, this is very profound. All you have to do to throw a pebble to the earth is what? All God has to do for Satan to die? Get your mind around that. Wow, is that profound. Okay, you'll see it coming out more, more, more clearly. As easy as one casts a pebble to the earth. But by doing so, he would have given a precedent to the exercise of force. All the compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work in this line. He would not give the slightest encouragement for any human being to set himself up as God over another human being, feeling at liberty to cause him physical or mental suffering. The principle, this principle is holy of Satan's creation. First off, is the Christian world clear on that point? Is the Christian world today seeking to get hold of governmental laws to coerce people by legislation, imprisonment, fines to do what they think is right? Sure. Can you have a physical war without compelling power? Physical war. Can you have a physical war without, without using force? No. So if there's no compelling power and force, it would never to be used on God. Was there a physical war in heaven? There was no physical war in heaven. I can't believe they wrote this. Yes. In, in Luke 10, it talks, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What had just occurred? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to get there. Oh. It's coming. But you want to say it? Go ahead. Well, the 70 had just returned from des- describing the truth to those who they met. And, and how was that connected to the Satan falling from heaven like lightning? 
he was no longer welcome. There was no, there was no benefit from him being there. Absolutely. And, 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 and we're going to get some other Bible references where Christ even makes that more clear and why he was cast out of heaven. Can you see the Christian world today, though, is confused on this issue of God's use of power? In fact, the Christian world today, teaching that justice requires that God uses power to inflict just punishments and kill, is preparing the world to accept Satan as he impersonates Christ. This is our God, and we have waited for him. Because a being is going to come with amazing abilities and magical powers, and he's going to say and speak in melodious words, and he's going to talk about how he loves, but his law has been broken. And, and even though he died to pay the penalty for, for, for the broken law, that some refused to, to obey. And if, you, and if you would only worship him now, he would still grant you mercy and still grant you forgiveness of sins. But if you won't get down on knee and worship him, then he'll be enforced to imprison you. and will be enforced to kill you. You can be sure that that is not the Son of God. The principle... Now, the principles of the character of God were the foundation of education constantly kept before the heavenly beings. These principles were goodness, mercy, and love. Self-evidencing light. What's self-evidencing light? What's that, what's that actually referring to? Truth. How reality works. It's just obvious. Okay? Self-evidencing light was to be recognized and freely accepted by all who opposed who occupied positions of trust and power. They must accept God's principles and through the presentation of truth and righteousness convince all who were in, in uh, his service. This was the only power to be used. Force must never come in. All who thought that was their position, that their position gave them power to command their fellow beings and control conscience must be deprived of their position for this is not God's plan. When was the last time we chose church leaders? We asked them how their, what they believed in regards to the use of authority in the church. Or when was the last time we chose a church leader and asked if they refused to teach that God uses force on people? This writer says if they teach that, they should be deprived of their position. We might have a lot of, of job openings. There's something beyond a, a direct frontal attack as well. There's something called siege. And the way the old armies throughout history have done it, they've surrounded a city, they've built a siege, they've isolated their enemy, they have starved them to death, and that's exactly what a lot of these leaders are doing now. And, and, and spiritually, that's what's happening. You you lock the Bible away in the dark ages. You don't let people have access to it. You you have a, you, you you shut down the access avenue. Now, how are we doing it today? By getting people to never read and study for themselves. Right. I'm going to skip a paragraph here and go on. It says, in the councils of heaven, it was decided that principle that principles must be acted upon that would not at once destroy Satan's power, for it was God's purpose to place things upon eternal an eternal basis of security. Well, what, what's necessary for an eternal basis of security? Think it through. To see the truth and no one to believe a lie. There it is. For all the intelligent beings to be fully persuaded in their own mind that nothing could shake them out of it. They're so settled that they can't be convinced otherwise. That's what's necessary. 
Time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his government. The heavenly universe must see worked out the principles which Satan declared were superior to God's principles. God's order must be contrasted with Satan's order. The corrupting principles of Satan's rule must be revealed. The principles of righteousness expressed in God's law must be demonstrated as unchangeable, perfect, and eternal. What were the principles of Satan? I'm going to just tell you, it comes back to the thing we've been emphasizing here. Satan's principles are coercive power, arbitrary rules. And, of course, deception. God's are, this is how life works. The principles of love, beneficence, giving. I'm, I'm giving of myself constantly for the welfare and the sustenance of my universe. I'm going to have to jump down a little farther because we're running out of time. There's really important things to hear. So the Lord allowed Satan to go on and demonstrate his principles. God uh, did reveal that his principles were right, and he carried the world's unfallen and the heavenly universe with him. But it was at terrible cost. His only begotten son was given up as Satan's victim. What does this mean? As Satan's victim. Notice that. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed a character entirely opposite of that of Satan. By causing the death of the sovereign of heaven, Satan defeated his own purpose. Pause again. According to this author, who caused the death of Jesus? Who do you believe killed Jesus at the cross? Evil man at the instigation of Satan or God? You know, penal substitution theology has God in the role of killing Jesus at the cross because it was the just, because he's the ruler. Justice requires sin to be punished. God had to be the one to fall the hammer and kill his son. In our own literature, you've seen the quotes before. Next sentence, get this. I want you to think about why. The death of the Son of God made the death of Satan unavoidable. Think about why. Why would that be? Why would the sovereign, who's sovereign, why could he not avoid that if he wanted? Why could he not put it off? Why could he not avoid the death of Satan? Why is it unavoidable? Which law lens are you looking through? How does reality work? Design law will make this clear. Because God would no longer need to hold back the results of Satan's choice. God has actually been holding at bay what Satan has been choosing. Because God would no longer need uh, to hold hold that, uh, that separation from God at bay, which results in death. Before Christ's death, Satan's death was avoided. God actually used his power to avoid Satan's death before Christ's death at the cross. Why? Because it would have caused confusion over God's character, laws, methods, and the reason Satan had died. But now God's actions and methods are clear, and God no longer needs to hold at bay what Satan's own choice will result in when God lets go as a pebble to the earth. Now, continue on with the quote. He was allowed to go until his administration was laid open before the unfallen, uh, before the world's unfallen and before the heavenly universe. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he uprooted himself from the affections of the unfallen beings. He was seen by all to be a liar, thief, and a murderer. Today, Satan is working upon human minds by his crooked principles. What are his crooked principles? But primarily, impose law construct. He's, he's, he's made his principles, in other words, his crooked law. That's what principles are. Principles, laws, design law stuff, okay? By his crooked law, this, that God's law is arbitrary and imposed. That's what he's done. He's infected us with this idea. These will be adopted, and, and this idea of imposed law, this crooked principles, these will be adopted and acted upon by some who claim to be loyal and true to God's government. In other words, people in the church are going to teach this. God does not force anyone. He leaves all free. Individually, we are deciding our destinies. 
deciding whether we shall enjoy the high honor that can be given man, even an eternal weight of glory, or be ranked with Satan by possessing his character by dishonoring God because we profess to be Christians while misrepresenting Christ. How do we misrepresent him? By, we, by this imperialistic, coercive belief system that we practice on others. Now, I just want to say, in closing, following up Wendell's point, because it was actually alluded to in here, lightning falling from heaven, I saw him, Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all into me. But he said something right before that. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. Be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all into me. That's John chapter 12, 31 and 32. And rather than going through a long explanation, I'm just going to read it to you from the remedy and see what you think about how and why he was cast out. The lesson was suggesting maybe there was a physical casting out. This wasn't a physical casting out. You remember in the book of Job, where, where do you see Satan in the book of Job? He's up there walking around in heaven, okay? He wasn't cast out. He said Jesus connected the casting out with his crucifixion when he's lifted up. That's when he connected the two. And so here's, here's my uh, paraphrase. Now is the time for the infection of selfishness and sin in this world to be fully diagnosed and revealed as destructive. Now, Satan, the prince of this selfish world, will be driven out into the open, out of the shadows, out from behind his lies and distortions about God and God's methods, out where all can see him as the murderer he truly is, and thus out of the hearts of all who love me. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all intelligence throughout the universe to me. And this is why and how he was cast out. Because, and there's other quotes I don't have time to share with you, that after, you know, it, and we read earlier that when he... Uh, caused the, the death of Christ. He, um, how, did, how did it say it here? By shedding the blood of the Son, he uprooted himself from the affections of the unfallen beings. They were settled now, and they understood, and Satan's lies and his deceptions had no impact on them before. There was no intelligent being anywhere in the rest of the universe that would give Satan any moments of, of, of time or energy. Thus, he was cast out of their hearts, out of their affections, and out of their time. He was restricted to earth because earth is the only place people will now listen to him. It was never a physical battle. It's always been a battle for minds and hearts. There's more stuff in the lesson, but we, we won't get to it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that's genuinely love. And you created us in your image to love as you love. We have been infected. In fact, we were born infected, Lord. And, and we need your spirit to come and take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce your character in us, your motives, your desire, and then enlighten our minds with the spirit of truth that we can discern the right from the wrong, that we can grow in understanding and how your kingdom works, that we can uh, discern around us the, the differences and, and be able to diagnose and see the infection and help share the truth instead of the minds free. We pray in your holy name. Amen.